0: Hello everybody uh, and Kia Ora. So today uh, is our final uh, webinar in the series on the updated pedestrian guidance um, and we will talk about the planning and design considerations for creating safe, accessible um, and connected environment in residential areas. We have more than 700 people registered for today's session. Um, Welcome to you all and thanks for joining us. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a communications officer at Austroads, and I will be moderating today's session. First of all, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Baitani and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. Um, a little bit about Austroads. Uh, we are the collective of uh, Australasian transport and traffic agencies. And our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. The project uh, that we are focusing on today was delivered under the transport network um, operations program which is managed by Richard Del Place. Uh, a bit of housekeeping for today. So our presenters will speak for 40 minutes and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. Um, A few handouts for you today on the right hand side of your screen, you will find um, in the handout section of your sidebar, you will find the report. Today's session is based on presentation slides um, and the navigation graphic that explains um, where to find the updated content in the Austrood guides. There's also a question section there so please use it to send us your questions for the Q&A at any time during the webinar. If you could uh, note the slide number that your question relates to that would help, um, help us answer your question as best as we can. Um, you can also use that same questions box uh, if you have any technical problems, but a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. So leaving the session, closing the browser and rejoining uh, the session via your registration link usually helps. Um, the session has been recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website um, and you can also find our shorts in your podcast app. So our presenters today, um, again, Anne-Marie Head and Jeanette Ward from Ebley. We will first hear from Anne-Marie. She's um, an Associate Director at Ebley where she's the key member of the people and places team, which is focused on planning and designing complex urban environments for safe and healthy people. And Marie has a specific interest in planning and designing for active travel modes and understanding the multiple benefits that those modes bring to individuals, the community and the planet. And our second presenter is Jeanette. she is a technical director at Ebly and also a member of the People um, and Places team. She has a diverse engineering background that allows her to see urban environments from a range um, of different perspectives. And she also has a specific interest in street design. Jeanette uh, has been involved in a range of industry uh, guidance projects. And as a practitioner, she understands the level of detail people require for various topics. Um, A very warm uh, welcome to um, Jeanette and Anne-Marie, and I will now hand over to Anne-Marie.
1: Thanks, Ekaterina, and welcome everybody today. So, as you probably know by now, this webinar is one of a series of seven that we're doing. Today is the last one, um, and you can get some links to all of the other ones there um, if you haven't watched them already. These next few slides about the project we've covered off in more detail in the previous webinars, but we really do hope that this suite of seven webinars has helped bring to life the key principles that we've been talking about. And thanks um, again to the Ostroads working group, um, the people shown there have been um, a lot of help to us. We undertook the research phase of this work some time ago now, and we recognize there are new techniques and practice evolving all the time. Um, Of relevance to this um, particular webinar is the research about classifying, measuring and valuing the benefits of place on the transport system, which has been published since we completed our work. And also just a note that AustRoads develops guidance with input from the jurisdictions, but it's acknowledged that some jurisdictions will retain their own guidance for for some topic areas. And just a clarification as well, that this project did not produce a new guide relating to pedestrian planning and design. We've had some questions coming through that refer to a new guide. So we thought we'd just clear that up. The new and updated guidance um, that we developed has been integrated into the guide to uh, traffic management and the guide to road design parts. So the guide to traffic management changes were made last year and the changes to the guide to road design will be made in due course. Um, It's worth also noting that the research report shown there on the left um, also made recommendations for future consideration by both the transport network operations and the road safety and design programs. So these were related to subject areas where we considered more research is needed. Uh, Some of the key recommendations were that research be undertaken into the travel speeds and design related issues of personal mobility devices. So, taking into account the maximum allowable um, speeds under the applicable jurisdiction. Um, and research into the impact of cognitive impairments on transport planning and design is also required, as well as things like pedestrian wayfinding guidance and guidance on pedestrian modeling. So those were some of the recommendations that came out of that report. And I suggest you go and have a look there if you're interested in more detail. And just a reminder that there is a navigation graphic available from the handout section of your toolbar. So that might help you find what you're looking for within those two series. So this webinar today is about how to ensure pedestrians are planned and designed appropriately um, in residential areas. We've also indicated where to find the guidance in Austroads. There's no specific part for residential areas as there is for activity centres that we spoke about earlier in the week. But um, the Guide to Traffic Management part eight does have guidance on local street management that can be useful um, in residential areas. Again, we've included references in the bottom left-hand corner of the slides and used colour coding um, as shown there. And just a reminder that the design-related updates we recommended are still to be incorporated into the guide to road design, um, but the bulk of the recommended changes have been included in our webinars. And we also had a handout on crossing design that we talked about in the crossings and intersections webinars. Um, um, The guide to road design part and section numbers also might change in the future because there's another project looking at reframing those parts. So just be aware of that. And we've also got some project examples that we'll present today, but they're not included in the guides. So an introduction to residential areas. So a residential area is a place where people live and often includes neighborhood shops, cafes, schools, and also community facilities. Some typical features that you might find are a concentration of people activity, generally at the start and end of the day, associated with work and schools. And um, some pedestrian activity across the day as people walk to access other activities and also for recreation and enjoyment. There is a predominantly residential land use, but um, it can also include mixed uses. Um, this example here is in Auckland and it's a housing development, development known as Stonefields. There are a range of property sizes and house types, and some neighbourhood shops and a primary school. And Jeanette's going to talk about this one as a project example a little bit later on. So there's no definition um, of residential areas in Austroads, but they can be classified by the density of the housing. So you can um, call that low, medium and high density housing. Um, Also, it's location in the wider urban area. For example, it's proximity to activity centres and community facilities and also the availability of public transport and walking and cycling connections. All of these aspects can impact the walkability of the area and associated design, as we'll discuss in this webinar today. It's important to note that Austrode's guides are not land use planning guides, but they, they do promote the integration of land use and transport planning, and recognise that urban developments that are remote from public transport services and walking and cycling connections Um, are unlikely to contribute to a walking environment, walkable environment. There is a recent um, international movement towards 15-minute communities um, that's gained traction since our research and it makes total sense. There's a link there to a website that gives you some more information and ideas about that. So why would you initiate a residential area project? Well, it could be initiated for a number of reasons. Um, I've got some of them listed there. It could be a new residential area, either Greenfield or Brownfield, could be expansion or revitalization of an existing residential area, or some targeted projects such as safety improvements within an existing area. This example here is the Tamaki Regeneration Plan that is taking a neighborhood by neighborhood approach to understand the specific needs, opportunities, and challenges of each residential area and the families who live there. And the project objectives for this type of project are likely to be a mix of urban design, transport, and other things like stormwater management. So therefore, um, as we've spoke about previously, a multidisciplinary team is important. So in terms of AustRoad's guidance, I've already mentioned that the Guide to Traffic Management part eight called Local Street Management is useful um, for the planning and management of road space usage in a local area. It provides guidance on how to reduce traffic volumes and speeds in local streets, and also how to increase amenity and improve safety and access for residents, um, in particular pedestrians and cyclists. It also provides guidance for planners and engineers um, associated with the design, development and management of residential precincts. As well as the Ostroads guides, there is likely to be guidance or planning rules for your jurisdiction. So in New Zealand, we have district plans. They have requirements for residential developments and often have supporting design guides as well. And we see that the Queensland government has a healthy and active communities planning framework, which is about ensuring that development in Queensland occurs in a manner that helps create more livable communities. So a key part of their framework is creating walkable neighbourhoods. And we understand that new residential subdivisions in Queensland will be assessed against the benchmarks. Um, they're shown in those orange boxes there relating to connectivity, block lengths, footpaths, park or open space, and street trees. And there is also a walkability tool um, that they've developed that can be applied to new and existing neighbourhoods. So I've given you a link to that there. (coughs) For regeneration projects, um, community involvement is very important. Um, The Guide to Traffic Management Part 8 um, provides some basic planning processes and recognises that community involvement is at the heart of the process. Jeanette will run you through a street generation example later where community involvement was key. In residential area streets, what type of pedestrians are you likely to see? We are likely to see lots of children walking, scooting, biking, and sometimes playing in areas like cul-de-sac kids. As we talked about in our first webinar last year, a child's physical size limits their ability to see and be seen in the road environment. They may um, have a limited attention span and cognitive abilities, meaning they may be unable to read or understand warning signs or possibly traffic signals. So this means we need to consider how legible the streetscape is, um, and for example, use symbols rather than words. Children also may be less accurate in judging the speed of vehicles and how far away they are, and this can lead to them choosing to cross the road unsafely. It was only the other day when I was crossing, uh, when I was walking my son to school, I noticed some young children walking um, by themselves in front of us. Uh, When they went to cross, they just looked in one direction, saw the car car coming towards them and then ran across the road in front of it. They're also likely to be more older pedestrians and more parents, predominantly women with small children and um, prams. This really reinforces the need to make site visits at varying times of the day so you can see the different people using space rather than just the traditional commuter peaks. Many cities are looking more closely at how women travel. There's a great study, um, we've put a link there um, by Sydney called On The Go, How Women Travel Around Our City. A key message from that study was don't be gender blind apply a gender lens that considers the needs of women when designing active transport infrastructure. So that's a useful link there. So in terms of the data collection phase at the start of your project, you'll need to collect some pedestrian specific data for for regeneration projects, for example. You can look look at our earlier webinar um, that goes through this in a bit more detail, but essentially you would need to collect pedestrian volumes and there are a range of methods to do this. You're also likely to need to collect um, behaviour observations, so where people are crossing the road. You might also want to undertake pedestrian audits, such as walkability audits or community street reviews. And then for an overall understanding of how the area operates, you would need to um, collate traffic volumes, distribution speeds, cycle volumes, maybe the parking occupancy and turnover in some areas. As I mentioned, you're likely to observe more women in residential areas. So you need to think about the time of day that you would do the survey or the audit. I'm now gonna go through the um, walkable characteristics that we've talked about in our other webinars and how this relates in particular to um, residential areas. So we've talked about these characteristics a number of times before, and I've got some examples on the next slides about how they can be taken on for residential areas. So the universal characteristic, you need to ensure the environment is suitable for all ages, sizes, abilities, and disabilities. We talked about this last time that mobility impaired people need smooth surfaces, shallow gradients, and accessible clear routes. And you need to also ensure the environment is suitable for vision impaired people. So um, uh, light like for mobility impaired, the shallow gradients, smooth surfaces, but also tactile, Um, indicators to guide them as to where to cross. An example of an issue for people using mobility aids is curb profiles that are difficult to use when crossing the road. So in this photo here, there's a footpath on only one side of the street. So if a person with a wheelchair lives here, they would need to cross to the other side to use the footpath. They would do this using their driveway. But when a curb profile shown like this one is, um, is installed, then it's a barrier to them. Someone also asked in one of the other webinars what a curb fender was, because Jeanette had used this term when describing curb kerberance um, and pointed out that the fender to the road transition also needs to be smooth. So just to clarify, the fender is the point on the curb profile shown um, in the, by that blue line where the curb meets the road formation. And the whole um, curb profile needs to be smooth for people to be able to use it. Safety for pedestrians is about ensuring vehicle speeds are low, which reduces the risk of a severe injury. This is um, achieved through speed limits and supporting design to keep the vehicle speeds low. Most residential streets um, in Australasia still have 50 kilometer per hour speed limits, but there are many areas that have adopted 30 or 40 kilometer per hour um, limits. And Jeanette will go through some examples of areas that have taken um, an area wide approach to reduce speed limits. I guess I'd also like to say that the slower the speed, the better. Um, so, So that's the journey that we're on to get these slower speeds. The key to providing a secure environment can be achieved through applying crime prevention through environmental design principles that we've talked about in several of our webinars. Visibility and the ability to be seen is a key principle. So the example in the top photo is a a good example of a straight access way between streets with low and see-through adjacent fencing to the properties. The bottom photo is not straight and has high solid fencing, so there's little passive surveillance. Um, Appropriate lighting is also important and it allows people to see and be seen. In residential areas, the need for lighting and access ways will need to be balanced with the impact on adjacent residents. As we've been saying in the webinars, it's important to work closely with um, urban designers, lighting engineers, and SEPTED experts on this. Paths need to be accessible, and we've used this example of a telecommunications box blocking the path for wheelchair and mobility scooters. This is not acceptable. Uh, Accessible at a network level could be creating blocks that are permeable for pedestrians. For example, through the use of small blocks and access ways between streets. Long meandering cul-de-sacs and one cul-de-sac leading into another cul-de-sac or a long driveway are not best practice. Essentially, cul-de-sac based residential areas are the classic example of low permeability networks unless they have that access way connection designed appropriately to other streets. Some sites can have challenging topographical constraints, such as waterways or slopes. So some councils have created guidance to help developers think differently, such as this example here from Capitaly Coast District Council, where they've um, given some ideas of what's good design and what's not good design. At the street level, walking routes should connect to other streets or paths. And as I just mentioned, cul-de-sac neighbourhoods are generally not connected. They could be improved by connecting cul-de-sac heads to streets um, for walking, but that can be costly due to the property purchase. It could be part of a longer-term plan that can be implemented when a property is subdivided. To be legible, walking routes should be obvious and inviting, for example, by including crossings on the direct route to destinations, such as bus stops, schools, reserves, or activity centres. This example here is a residential area um, with a school in the top of the photo a, and a community centre and park on the other side of the road, and there are some access way connections. The crossing points shown by the blue arrows are located on obvious align, alignments. In terms of legibility, it's unlikely that wayfinding will be necessary in a residential area because pedestrians are generally familiar with that area. Reducing the traffic speed will make people feel more comfortable, but also the path widths need to be appropriate for the demand, so you avoid uncomfortable and potentially unsafe conditions. Also, path surfaces should be smooth to walk on with no trip hazards. And street trees can provide shade and that improves the comfort as well. In terms of convenience, this could mean continuous, efficient routes unimpeded by obstacles. Obviously, wheelie bins create a weekly challenge if you have those on the street. Crossings need to be well located on desire lines. Here's Jeanette's favorite crossing again, um, and the refuge in the, has a crossing on either side of the intersection where people want to cross. So that gives people options and makes it convenient. And finally, um, a pleasant, the pleasant characteristic. Seating can be provided for people to rest, linger, and socialize in residential areas. And as I mentioned um, a minute ago, street trees uh, um, can help make a street more attractive and pleasant. And here are some examples of some street art in residential areas that can make a place um, more vibrant and attractive. So just a reminder to please send us any questions you might have, and if you can, let us know the slide number, that's very helpful for us. I'm now gonna pass over to Jeanette, who's gonna talk through the planning and design considerations. Thanks Anne-Marie, so we'll start off talking about speed
2: management because as Anne-Marie has already mentioned uh, this is a really important part of creating a um, walkable residential area. So many areas are adopting lower speed limits and the example here is actually a 40k hour zone which was created in a suburb of Christchurch called Charleston many years ago and at that time it was quite groundbreaking. It also now has a 30k street through the middle as part of a neighbourhood Greenway cycle route. Here's another example of an area-wide approach. So Queenstown Lake District Council have recently changed all their 50k residential urban streets to 40k an hour speed limit. The image here is Queenstown but they've also made changes to other urban areas in the district. Council stated that reducing the speeds in these areas will make a big difference in improving the safety of our roads for all all users, such as school children, pedestrians, cyclists, horse riders, heavy vehicles, commuters, and visitors. So essentially selling this change on a basis of outcome to all people using the street. But of course, in the media, there were headlines such as who's to blame for the 40k speed limit? with many people asking why it had happened and what supported the claim that lower speed limits would improve safety. I think we should be showing the public that graph that Amory showed earlier around the probability of death and serious injury at various um, speeds. We should be showing the public this on a more regular basis. I showed it to some councillors not so long ago when they were considering a 30k uh, town centre speed limit. And one of them said, well, that's a no brainer, isn't it? So within residential areas, you will find um, schools. So school speed zones are another way to support more walking and cycling to improve overall safety at schools. There is some specific school crossing um, details also in um, Guide Traffic Management part six and part four, because crossings are also an important part of Residential streets with schools, and usually they are within a speed limit zone. There are a range of speed management devices that can be used to reduce speeds. So some are shown here for a stretch of street near my house. So along this length of road, we have um, a raised safety platform at the far left that still facilitates two-way flow, and then a one-way chicane. And I've noticed this is very effective in reducing speeds and cyclists are given a bypass either side of the chicane. And then another raised safety platform and then a raised intersection. So having these treatments regularly along a route will help bring those speeds down. Residential areas are unlikely to be congested networks. There may be some short term congestion around schools, although this of course can be resolved through more walking and cycling to school. Traffic management will most likely involve lowering your speed limits and reducing traffic volumes. Often rat running can be a problem in residential streets. If people have found a way to avoid signals on nearby collectors or arterials, for example. Guide to Traffic Management part eight, local street management outlines the process for developing schemes, the types of schemes and how you might select the various um, devices, which are referred to as Latin devices. This example here is a residential area in Christchurch where the Kerbin Channel was renewed around 15 years ago. And at the same time, it was an opportunity to reconfigure intersections and add speed reduction devices because there was some rat running going on. And often some residents themselves can go way too fast but you can see there that at the intersections there was quite a lot of changing of priority or offsetting intersections and also um, realigning bends. So overall that that was quite a successful um, Latin project. So Guide to Traffic Management Part A also has this table which allows you to see the various benefits of different devices, including your vertical deflection devices, the horizontal and also diversion. So go and have a look at that if you're looking at um, an area-wide treatment. Low traffic neighbourhoods, also known as LTNs, are another method. And there are some great examples in London where a focused effort has been made to create these types of areas, such as Waltham Forest. A recently report, a re- released report from the Helen Clark Foundation outlines how low traffic areas and Aotearoa streets can decarbonise transport save lives and create the connected urban communities we need in a post-pandemic future. It's definitely worth a read. So here's just an example of applying tactical urbanism approach. So these photos are from London where they have created some low-traffic neighbourhoods. And you can see there, they've done that very cheaply through the use of planter boxes. Throughout these uh, webinars we've tried to show examples of this tactical urbanism approach because often there isn't um, available budget to do permanent things and they also allow you to change things around and get that feedback from the community before a more permanent feature is locked in. So just moving on to street design. We talked a bit about this in the road space allocation webinar. But really I just wanted to talk about these uh, I guess historical wide streets we have these promote higher vehicle speeds and are very hard to cross and have lower character and amenity whereas nowadays we are getting more narrow residential streets and design guides and the likes of district plans are requiring them which is great these help lower vehicle speeds and they add more character and amenity, and of course are much easier to cross than our Um, The photo on the left is around 13 metres wide, whereas the one on the right is around 6 metres wide. And also, we often see differences in the the character of streets depending on density. So a typical low-density street might have um, this carriageway with on-street parking and some street trees, whereas there seems to be more of a focus on the amenity in higher density areas with the um, footpaths um, on both sides but with indeed parking. So footpaths, the path provision is generally based on what's happening in terms of adjacent land use and activities. As part of this project um, we have changed what was called a New Zealand example in um, the Guide to Road Design, 6A, to a recommended practice. Now this table is all about when to provide urban and rural paths. And it's based on land use and whether it's a new road or an existing road. and talks about what is preferred and what is minimum. This shows that residential local streets are recommended or preferred to have footpaths on both sides. It's only when you have very, very low density that one side might be acceptable. There are a lot of district plans in New Zealand addressing this in their district plan reviews, which is great. As for many years, there has been um, really only a requirement for a footpath on one side of local streets. Even, um, you know, very busy streets that might be taking children to school. Residential area footpaths need to be wide enough for the demand. And like I mentioned, it's often based on um, things like the density in schools. But there may also be activity centres within residential areas. It is important to consider the clear accessible route when there are areas with street furniture or items such as sandwich boards. The preferred clear route should be against the building line if this is straight. In the activity centres webinar, I showed a picture of a scenario where the design had a paved area against the building for sandwich boards. This was to demonstrate that if for whatever reason that exists, then the paving needs to help differentiate the clear zone. But what I should have made clear was that the preference is for the clear route to be against the building line. When it comes to um, shared paths again we talked about this more in the um, road space allocation webinar and they may be suitable in some areas due to lower volumes of pedestrians. but you really need to think this through carefully because there are other aspects such as fence heights and the frequency of driveways now we've showed you this graphic a few times this is um, showing the range of operating speeds for different users of paths and how um, essentially that can lead to conflict for, between them. Um, as Emery mentioned earlier, we have recommended more research is undertaken into the travel speeds and design related issues for personal mobility devices because when we put this together, it was based on quite a lot of research and that's why, um, you know, sometimes the range can be high but we think it's important that we undertake some Uh, research in Australasia for this. In the photo on the right, this situation is very unlikely to be suitable um, to convert to a shared path, even if widening out the the berm area. Just due to the thing, you can see there's a utility box there, and I don't think these people would really want cyclists on their path. So when it comes to crossings in residential areas, again, we've uh, got a whole webinar on this, But in residential areas, it's really about finding where those busy desire lines are, and often that can be related to schools and access to community facilities. This example here is in a town where there are community facilities on either side of the road, and it is where children walk to school. And previously there was the raised platform on the left-hand side, and this was confusing for both the people crossing the road and drivers. And the great news is that the photo on the right is now what is in place. So essentially using the same platform and turning this into a zebra crossing. So when it comes to intersections, um, because of the lower volumes, they're unlikely to be signalized. So they're more likely to be either uncontrolled or priority controlled. Although there may be some instances where low speed roundabouts may be appropriate. But do remember to think about the refuge size and whether raised tables will help keep the speeds down. Raised intersections are very common. Um, We talked about the one in the bottom there in the intersections webinar. And the one on the top is essentially an uncontrolled intersection and is entirely paved and looks good and is appropriate for that environment. So just some key messages. before we move on to some project examples so low speeds in residential areas will improve safety and make the environment more comfortable for everyone low traffic neighborhoods will improve walkability and And i think it's fair to say that the era of wide residential streets is over so i've got a couple of examples of residential regeneration projects we've talked several times about future streets during the webinars um, we had some examples of surveys that they had undertaken. But essentially, this is a flagship project in the central Mangere in Auckland. And it has involved changing the features of the streets in order to increase the opportunities for walking, cycling and other forms of physical activity, but also to improve road user behaviour and safety. There's a link there in the bottom corner that has a website fully dedicated to this project. And you'll find there's a lot of resources in there there's been a lot of um, conference papers a lot of post um, implementation evaluations so really there was quite a number of aims and you know when it comes down to it um, there's a lot of things that aren't even related to engineering or planning so dogs in the area posing a threat to pedestrians and cyclists was a key um, issue they were experiencing so working with the community intensely is really the only way you can address these kind of peripheral issues and you can see the photos there of before and after of several locations in the area. So we had um, a couple of big earthquakes here in Christchurch and the first earthquake in 2010 was the one that did a lot of damage to a small town called Kaipoe. And um, luckily no one was injured during this earthquake or killed, but it did destroy a lot of homes and it also destroyed um, a lot of streets. So this was an opportunity to address a series of 1970 style subdivisions with very wide streets. You can see the photo in the top there, that was a, typical street in this area but community emotion was high as you can imagine so engagement needed to be done carefully so essentially this project took a really um, involvement type level where we had barbecues drop-in sessions and basically encouraged the community to come down and join us and in terms of the community in motion, this was an opportunity for them to meet up with their neighbours. So it wasn't just about giving us feedback, it was actually a way for them to um, engage with their community as well. So essentially a network planning approach was taken and recreating a hierarchy is all the streets and intersections looked the same. When I first started working on this project, I got lost several times in this area you had to actually look at the um, road signs to see whether you were going into a no exit street because the design of it was such that you just wouldn't know. So a bit of a reclassification was undertaken. A spine road was created where everything fed into it. It was a very cul-de-sac based kind of environment um, in the top of the the photo there, but um, one park linked those two areas. Opportunities to try and provide more access ways were also investigated. So the classification became um, resident street, which was the very, very low volume, a neighborhood street, a local area street, and then these were all feeding into a spine road. And what we found with engaging with people was um, there was some resistance to the reduction of widths of the road um, or providing cycle facilities, And then when you drill down into it and ask, why don't you support that? And they're like, well, no one cycles around here. And you're like, well, why is that? Oh, because everyone drives too fast. And then you would see the penny drop. So for the various typologies, some ideas were put on the table and people could give feedback on that. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of that area became uh, red zoned, which is, a term to say that the, uh, ec- the rebuilding of those areas was not feasible from an economic point of view. So some of the work was implemented, but some wasn't. So moving to Australia, and um, we do apologize for the heavy New Zealand uh, project examples. and This is because that is what we know, um, but someone has passed on this really um, great example in South Australia called Bowden. And it's one of South Australia's first high-density urban refill projects, which is quite close to the CBD. And it actually takes up quite a big area; It's 16 um, hectares. So this project is setting out to basically set new standards in urban renewal. And a key target of the project is to achieve a mixed-use walkable community of mid-rise apartments. So one of the things that they celebrate with this project is some clear guiding principles. And it's always really useful to have principles like this so you can come back to them at every step of the project. So obviously the ones that stand out there um, from a walkability point of view is the connection and movement and access. And of course sustainability if we can have people walking and cycling around. There's a um, link there to the website for that um, project as well. And here's just a couple of photos I found. So at a block level, it's all about keeping those small blocks, making them walkable, having green spaces that also provide um, the ability to walk through. And then you can see an example there of a street where it's nice and narrow, street trees. In this case, um, there's no curb, it's nice and flush, but the footpath is defined differently to to the carriageway. But essentially, that could, um, you know, act as more of a shared space. So I'm just going to finish off with um, a new residential area, and I only have one example for you today. But this comes back to the photo that Emery had earlier in the presentation, which I'd taken um, on the top of Mount Wellington. So this is a master planned community on 110 hectares. And it's located in the old um, Mount Wellington volcanic stone quarry site. It's eight k's from um, central Auckland. So for some people that's still a a reasonably good biking distance, especially with e-bikes. It's going to ultimately have around um, close to 3000 units. So, the Ministry for the Environment developed a, a case study um, for this, because I don't have any you know, knowledge of it myself, but we found a case study, and this, the case studies that the Ministry for the Environment undertaking are to support the New Zealand Urban Design Protocol. So they have a range of um, case studies, and this is one of them. So the case study findings were that Stonefields demonstrates good uh, principles of good urban design, including creating a neighborhood with interconnected streets and accessible public open spaces. It is an integrated development with clear pedestrian connections to encourage residents to walk to local facilities, and that the interaction between the public and private realm works really well, and that the streets feel safe for pedestrians. I think it also highlighted some um, lessons learned and some things that could be learned. So if you want to know more about that, um, do go and have a look at that case study. So as Anne-Marie mentioned, there is no uh, new guide uh, resulting from this work, but there is guidance um, spread throughout the various um, traffic management parts and road design parts and the road signed um, guidance will be um, coming soon, but definitely go and have a look at the guide to traffic management changes. So we're going to move on to some questions. Emery's going to come over here and join me, and we have the questions on our laptop. laptop.
0: Thank Good you, morning. Marie and Jeanette. I'm just taking it back. Yep. I'm here for you, I'm going to turn my camera off, but you just tell me what slide you want me to jump right. to.
1: Okay, um, so the first one doesn't really need the slide, but um, someone, we talked about the fender of the curve, and someone's mentioned that it's called the lip of the curve in Australia, so that might be helpful for you um, out there. Now there was a slide near the start, there's no slide number, but it was um, about collecting data um,
2: um
0: that, oh, one. Yeah, that, one. that one
1: yeah, so the question um has been asked sometimes the survey um might not reflect reality, so especially if there's high speed traffic or no you know no facilities, I guess, so um they're asking, are there any other ways to estimate the possible or potential um, numbers of pedestrians. So um, yes, we talked about this um, in our second webinar, so the June that measuring pedestrians webinar talks about some other methods that you can use. Um, the person has also asked if you can estimate um, pedestrian numbers after different types of improvements. I don't think that's necessarily possible because it depends on the context of the area you're looking at. So those um, uh, methods listed in that webinar and talked about in the guide to traffic management part three um, will help you in some respects.
2: Yeah, so I think in terms of trying to predict your after um, numbers, um, one of the methods um, in that list that Emery's talking about was the similar conditions survey mm. where you might go and find another place that's done something similar and hopefully they've done it before and after, but I think we're, pretty bad at doing that as an industry
1: and that's something we need to do and we need to share that information. Okay, there was another question with no slide number but we can just talk to it. It was about um, pedestrian access ways that I talked about um, in the walkable characteristics part and and the person has said that many councils are not really looking in into pedestrian connectivity in these states. Um, I guess we didn't really talk about it but We do know that um, at least in New Zealand, there are councils that have requirements um, for residential areas in terms of the maximum walkable block distance. Um, So that could be a way of kind of getting some requirements um, into planning proposals or development um, applications for having a a small block size, meaning people can walk around the block or use roads to walk around the block and then an access way through. So there are ways to measure, I guess, pedestrian connectivity and put it in as a a measurement.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: Slide 27, please, Ekaterina. It's probably, yeah, so the access way slide Um, above. This person has said it might be difficult to control what kind of fence homeowners put up. and they've asked how, so you could have a wider laneway. Um, the, the good practice shows a lighter, wider laneway than than the poor practice. So what, how wide should the laneway be to allow passive surveillance? Yeah, so that top example
2: there. Um, luckily, I think there was requirements in the district plan around fencing. Um, so it was set up right when that development was undertaken Um, and for that same council um, they require in their district plan um, I think it's 10 meters if you're going to have it as a shared pathway so that allows space for the um, shared facility and also enough landscaping on each side so 10 meters may sound quite wide but I think um, It also depends on your planting, in terms of what you're going to do along there. You can see there's a few trees down there, but generally it's low planting. So I don't have a precise number. Um, Possibly there's been some septic research that might be able to help you with that.
1: Okay, Ekaterina, slide 40, please. Um, The person has asked, does this neighbourhood work well? Um... From what I understand, it does. So this is this neighborhood
2: is called, um, it's in Papua Nui, Christchurch. in Christchurch, and that involved quite a lot of community consultation to implement that, and from what I understand, I don't
1: live there, so I can't categorically answer that question, but I understand it works well. Okay, question. Um, is there a movement and do we think um, that there should be a move to make all school zones um, 30 kilometer per hour speed zones? So I know in New Zealand, um, we're working towards that over time um, and you know, just looking back at the, um, the speed risk graph that we've talked about in all, our, all of our webinars, the lower the speeds, the better. So um, it makes sense.
2: And I do think that there is a move to it, even um, with things like speed limit setting rule changes coming in the future. So I can't speak for um, Australasian jurisdictions, but I, I,
1: I hope and um, feel that it's coming quite soon in New Zealand. So keeping on the topic of schools, what are our thoughts on part-time closure of a local road fronting a school at school times to provide a safer environment? um the person's mentioned it's becoming common in the UK yeah I haven't heard of that but um,
2: it kind of makes sense if you've got a frontage that is quite um, nicely tied into the network so that you can do that and still keep the traffic um, moving um, it also I guess would stop all that you know drop off Behaviour where people feel they need to drop their child right at the gate, um, it means they'd have to park a bit further away and walk, and that would be a
1: good outcome. So um, I think there's some um, safer school streets trials in Auckland that might be closing the the, the, yeah. um, the street frontage. Uh, slide 39, so one back, please, Katrina. Um, Just a question about how the cycle bypass works for people on bikes, particularly when they have to merge with traffic in the same direction.
2: Yeah, so that is my cycle route to and from work. And because it's such a low volume street, if I have happened to use the bypass, because there's a vehicle there at the same time, um, it's all happening quite slowly. And usually by the time I've got through, they're already ahead of me. It just
1: seems to work organically, if you know what I mean. Okay, someone wants to know the name of that street, please. Oh, it's Mackenzie Avenue in Christchurch. Okay. Okay, someone else has asked about, um, is there some documents or research about child psychology and its implications for street design and road safety? And will there be design guidance for streets um, near schools in the new guide to road design. Um, So we talked a little bit in our first webinar about um, child um, behaviors and abilities and what that means um, for street design in a very broad context. And I guess the guides should, you know, children are pedestrians, so they should be designed for. Um, In terms of whether there'll be specific guidance in the guide to road design, we're not involved in that project, so we don't know the answer to that. Sorry, anything else to add? No, no. Um, what guidance is there regarding speed limits on urban streets with no footpaths? 50 kilometers an hour is too high, that's what the person suggested, yes, I would agree. So, yeah, so, I mean, I've only
2: seen urban streets without footpaths in kind of very fringe areas like semi-rural areas and um, generally there are no exit roads so the residents are the ones who are kind of self-regulating the speed but if you did have a street that wasn't just for the residents and it had no urban um, no footpaths then we would definitely agree with that person that the speed limit would be too high in that environment
1: yeah slide 44 please katrina Um, So with a six metre wide road, this was where we were talking about the different um, road widths. How do you um, facilitate on road parking? So you can see in the
2: distance of that photo, there's a couple of indented parking bays. But when I walked around this area, there were still people um, parking on um, like an area in the forefront because there is no broken yellow lines. And it seems to be um, self-regulating because obviously you're not going to park where you're actually blocking the street. I know there's been a lot of uh, work by AT on emergency vehicle access in um, some of the narrower streets and they've um, reflected that in the guidance. So I think it kind of works from a self-regulating point of view, but it may be um, something that people just need to keep an eye on and if there is broken yellow lines
1: needed they could be added but they never look that great <laughs> okay slide 49 just a question about why are the e-bike speeds um, so high um, this person suggested that they are limited by law and I guess um, this diagram um, it is for it's trying to cover everywhere and there are different um, laws and regulations in the different jurisdictions. So I know in New Zealand, e-bikes aren't regulated um, in terms of speed, um, it's in terms of power. So I guess you need to just take that into consideration when you're looking at this diagram. Yeah, and also there are people that... Make their own e-bikes. Make their
2: own e-bikes, yes, and they can be quite fast. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay, um, what... Question's been asked, what do we feel about the idea of naked street junctions in residential streets, so. Yeah, so I mean, that's
2: almost like the one on um, the slide I showed with intersections at the top. So it was, there was no markings, no signs. It was just a um, paved area, looked very attractive. Um, So I think
1: those work really well when you have got those low volumes and low speeds. Okay, do you want to go to the crossings slide Ekaterina? Sorry, I'm not sure, a bit further on from this. Yeah, flick on a bit further. So this, yeah, there we go. This person's asked about um, zebra crossings. They think that there's a threshold of vehicle volumes and pedestrian volumes to be met. Um, That that often means um, that you you don't get the right sort of um, facility. So they've asked what is the current thinking regarding the need for thresholds to be met? Um, So I think by thresholds, they're meaning warrants. So warrants for different crossing types um, have sort of gone out of favour um, because we recognise that there's a lot of contextual considerations that you need to consider when you're choosing a a crossing facility. So the pedestrian facility selection tool um, doesn't use warrants, but it does um, use different criteria and you input um, different information into that tool and it will give you a range of um, suitable facilities and then you need to look at the context um, of the particular site to choose um, a preferred solution. Does that answer that question? Yeah, so we've only got about one minute left oh, so, sorry, and lots yeah. of questions, yeah, there's so of we questions. We're very sorry we, we can't catch <laughs> them. That. I'll do one more, um, uh, which one? Oh, this one, slide 51. The next slide was about um, what is the guidance on who has priority at raised intersections and crossings? Um, and is there a risk that installing different pavement types can cause confusion in that pedestrians do not have priority? So we talked a little bit in the um, crossings and the intersections webinars that um, there's different crossing types and different laws in the different jurisdictions, which means some crossing types can or cannot um, work in those jurisdictions. So uh, it really depends on where you are as to whether, um, on who has priority um, at side road intersections in particular. Um, Anything else we can say there? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, in
2: both of these photos here, um, the vehicles have right away. Um, but they're very low volume situations, so people wouldn't have to wait. And if people did decide to um, step out, then, you know, it's, it's a low speed environment. So vehicles have that time to go, oh, okay, someone's gonna cross. And, and some vehicles will stop across and, mm-hmm. and act in a courteous manner, Others, uh,
1: sorry, drivers may not but they might okay well that might be it for the questions today Um, thanks everyone for coming to all of these webinars and we'll go back to you Ekaterina for your last few slides
0: yep um, I'm just going to jump to those Oops, not that one, that one first. Um, Well, thank you so much, Anne Marie and Jeanette, for all your work um, and all your effort put into this um, webinar series. Uh, They have been very informative for our audience and it is greatly, greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. Um, So, yep, uh, just a few quick words um, about our next webinars. Join us on the 4th of March um, to hear um, about the results of our recent uh, project that investigates the design and performance um, of a sample of existing race safety platforms. Um, Sessions in March also include um, webinars on free capacity, freeway capacity analysis, on-road public transport priority tool, network operations planning, um, and many others. As you can see, we have a a variety of webinars so just check our website for more information and um, to register and as always um, when you leave the session there will be a um, questionnaire popping up on your screen so please um, take a couple of minutes uh, fill it in let us know what you liked what you didn't like Uh, we do read it all we appreciate your feedback and we use it to shape our future Um, webinar program so um, and after the session you will receive a follow-up email um, with the link to the recording on our website so thanks again everyone stay well and safe um, and enjoy the rest of your day and we will see you next time
1: see you Bye. bye